Uh, Carl is next. Carl says, Lauren, this is a recording I made at my local homeware store. Management to the tills. A Europop classic is coming. It should instantly, says Carl, be recognised as Erasure's opening bar to the synth classic drama. Love it. Management to the tilt. Imagine if Vince Clark shows up. He is. He is Erasure's management. That would be that would be right. Uh, Carl says, at the best, keep it teletext, keep it blocky. Thanks for that auto signature. Hello, I'm Carl, and welcome to Bite High No Limit. Bite High No Limit is a podcast about people's relationship with technology. And the Teletext People series speaks to people who are involved with keeping the blocking medium alive, people who used to work in Teletext back in the day, before it switched off in 2012. And in this episode, we're speaking to John Earls, who was editor of Planet Sound on Teletext between 1997 and 2009, which incidentally was the last year that Teletext ran on terrestrial television. That's Teletext with a capital T, of course. CFAX was to run until 2012 on the BBC. We started by discussing John's first recollections of using Teletext himself. To answer the question about, you know, my my own first experience of Teletext, it's it's actually broadly similar to Paul Rose's. You know, I mean, I'm not exactly sure how old Paul is, but I was also someone who grew up watching, uh, reading Teletext, uh, mid to late eighties and got into it through, through the entertainment pages. Um, again, again, like Paul, I don't have any specific memories of when I first encountered it. I don't remember a teletext house being, you know, a teletext TV set being a big deal in our house, but I do remember at some point and it coincided with me wanting to be a journalist. So unlike Paul kind of taking the anarchic approach, I was someone who kind of studied it a little bit more, journalistically and as much as anyone studies anything journalistically when you're like 14 years old but I was reading the uh the entertainment pages uh and the music pages Blue Suede Views as was on Oracle uh which were run by a guy called Chris Fuller and I've never met Chris Fuller and I you know I don't know of him being on social media or anything like that but I kind of owe him a big thank you because uh as part of thinking oh i'd like to be a journalist and you know music being one of my big passions obviously the first thing i ever had published long before i became a journalist was a reader's review of an album by a band called westworld in 1987 i think it'd be maybe 86 uh and i say i think i was 14 at the time and it was just like you know a reader's review because they ran reader's reviews every weekend on blue suede views and first one was Westworld. Second one was an ABC album called uh, Absolutely, I think it was called. But anyway, that was like, you know, about a month later. And that was literally my first experience, A, of having anything published at all. And B, obviously, of course, it being proto-teletext was my name on screen on the TV, as ephemeral as that was and as ephemeral as that continued to be when I professionally worked for it for, for 10 years. So, you know, I was I was just a fan of it. And also as a fan of it, I kind of dipped out of it a bit, you know, as as you would. But um, before I worked for it, when Oracle became Teletext, the music pages 
I, even I don't know the, the the sort of linear history of it, but the music page was run by a guy called Stephen Eastwood, who's a former melody maker journalist. And what Stephen did on what was already Planet Sound, Planet Sound was a name that Stephen came up with after a Pixies song. <laughs> Uh, what Stephen did editing Planet Sound was absolutely fantastic. You know, he 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 created a template that I basically worked to throughout my time there, and did a did a great job of making it slightly anarchic, very kind of individualistic voice, but also very authoritative within that. In that you had to have a broad range, or Stephen made it appear you had to have a broad range. You know, you could interview. I have a memory, and I don't know if this is a false memory, that Stephen interviewed Eminem for it. Now, the idea of Eminem talking to Teletext is just like off the scale <laughs> strange, and I have my own encounters with American musicians trying to explain Teletext to them, but Eminem would have been a particularly strange one. But I remember Stephen got some really big names for it. You know, I remember a Blur interview on there. Uh, uh, super furry animals, you know, he just he was just able to consistently knock it out of the park. And, uh, you know, before I thought I could work for it, before I, you know, before thought was not that it was impossible because I wasn't a good enough journalist, just that it was just like Stephen seemed to be planet sound, you know, it was like the identities of, were very much mixed in with a journalist at that time. And I think to a certain extent, I maybe covered that on when I worked for planet sound, but. You know, it was just a great hidden music magazine that was removed from the mainstream enough that you could you could get away with stuff that you couldn't do in Enemy and Melody Maker and Select and Q and, you know, all the other big music magazines at a time. And that's what made it so good to read and, you know, a goal to work for before I did work mm. for it. Mm. So um, how did the... Um... When you know, did the bands actually seek out Planet Sound as a part of the publicity round, um, or was it a case that you needed to get access? Some did, some didn't. I mean, there were musicians who were big fans of Planet Sound, um, but equally, a large part of the day was trying to, uh, you know, I mean, Teletext Planet Sound closed as part of Teletext editorial closing in 2009. And throughout my decade there, and I'm sure it was the same for Stephen, that your battle would always be to get big names to be interviewed for it, um, obviously. But there were enough... I think we had a reputation as being able to break new artists. You know, I think that's what I'm kind of proudest of of my time at Planet Sound, that, you know, for that decade, we became a good place that would write about new music. And I think it's you know it's it's fairly obvious to say that if you were the first among the first people, if not the first people, to write about an artist, that that loyalty would be repaid. So, you know, mm-hmm. if you if I wrote about someone in two thousand, they continue to want to be interviewed us, you know, throughout the rest of their career. I mean, Elbow would be a good example of that. Kaiser Chiefs as well. A lot of Naughties artists did did get their first breakthrough teletext, and therefore would. Um, continue to be interviewed by us. But then there were, you know, perhaps unlikely musicians who loved Teletext. Um, the classic go-to one would be Nicky Wire from Manic Street Preachers, who mm. he was an absolute Teletext obsessive. 
um, and Planet Sound being part of that. And, you know, he was, he was always a great, you know, he was always a great friend to Teletext and to, and to Planet Sound. And um, I think it's important to remember that, you know, you had entertainment figures and I think it was the same for some actors as well for the, you know, for the TV and film pages that if they weren't on tour or working on on a TV show, they'd be at home just, you know, sat in front of the TV like anyone else, really. And, of course, part of that would be watching Teletext. So, you know, you had some unlikely people who would just sit there reading Teletext the same as the rest of us. So, yeah, Nicky Wire was a good one. Um, Robert Smith from The Cure, mm-hmm. um, he was, a you know, he... I mean, to your question about, you know, were musicians seeking us out or were we having to persuade people to, you know, to be interviewed by Teletext? Robert was a funny one insofar as, you know, the record, Robert doesn't do many interviews. And of course, if you're saying, yeah, but I know I've heard that Robert Smith reads Teletext, any publicist is going to go, yeah, of course he is. And, you know, kind of treat you, keep you very much at arm's length. But eventually, like for the Cure album that came out, I think it was 2008, uh, 413 Dream, we eventually persuaded the Cure's publicist to get us Robert on the phone for 15 minutes. And once Robert found out it was for Teletext, it was like an hour late by the time he was just like, right, okay, I've got to go now, you know, because he was just like, oh, my God, I'm talking to Teletext, you know. There's a certain mindset of certain musicians who I think regarded talking to Teletext as an entity as being quite a spacey thing to get your head around. You know, mm. I'm talking to the TV, literally, and I think that appealed to a certain mindset of musician, you know? Oh, absolutely. So with um, with Robert Smith, was he an avid baker? Yes. Um, now, I, I didn't see the letter in question or the email in question. However, it was that Robert got in touch with us. But I was told convincingly that he wrote into Teletext for his own recipe for carrot cake, not kind of saying I'm, you know, making a big deal of it, but just we had a reader's recipe page and it really was Robert Smith from Crawley where he lives. And, it, you know, um, yeah, his recipe for carrot cake just appeared without any fanfare on, you know, whatever page the cookery pages were on. So, yeah, I can I can well believe that, you know, Robert Smith's recipe for carrot cake, if only, again, Teletext wasn't so ephemeral, is out there somewhere. Well, that'd be a, a gauntlet laid down for our uh, Teletext recovery people. So I know, really no, no doubt they'll be, yeah. dig, be digging that up. So that'd be good. And uh, Nicky Warr from the Manics, yeah, that's, that, that, that's a good one. Was um, he, he was a avid user of uh, Teletext, as you say, and I, I think that you've uh, you've mentioned that he's um, he voted with his feet out of a uh, famous Dublin hotel because of the he, lack of it somewhere. Yeah, he did. He really did. I mean, he he actually took great delight in telling me himself once when uh, you know. For, for for whatever it was, always was meant to be nominally talking about the latest Manix album, where um, he kind of started the interview by saying how much of a how much of a dump he thought the Clarence was the hotel owned by Bono. Not you know it's all very lovely and all very frou frou, but um, it did not have teletext in there. So you know, Nicky just immediately left the hotel and went to stay somewhere else because, and he apparently wrote uh, wrote Bono quite an angry email. <laughs> I don't know what Bono's <laughs> response to this was, probably slightly startled, but yeah, he, he really did write to Bono to say that, um, you know, to say, how dare your hotel not have teletext in there? 
<laughs> brilliant it's a, it sounds like a very um lively place to work at um you know during, during its heyday what was the atmosphere like in the office when you were knocking up um knock, knocking up interviews and meeting deadlines it's it's so funny because I mean when I look back at it now you know now that I'm 15 years older than when I left Teletext you look back at it and go god I must have had the energy of a young man to to be able to write so much for it um I mean the pros of being a one-man band was that as I said about Stephen um you know you could bend planet sound to your own vision of what a music magazine should be because the reality was is that um John Sage, who was the editor at Teletext, he he had the decency to leave you to get on with it. Basically, as long as you had so the the, the big deal at every section on Teletext for um for the entertainment sections would be to get a big week weekend name interview that you could may maybe perhaps publicize elsewhere, you know, so and so till Teletext for the big weekend interview. So as long as you got a big weekend name interview, you know, Snow Patrol or whoever it was that was big at the time, I say again, Kaiser Chiefs coming through. Um, so long as you had the big artists at the weekend, from Monday to Thursday, you were kind of left to get on with it and do whatever you wanted with it. You know, within reason, of course, but you could shape it to what you wanted it to be. And it meant that... Um, as I say, you could write about the artist, you know, I could write about what the artist that I wanted to write about. Fantastic. You know, what music journalist would not want to do that? But there were eight pages of news to write. There were eight pages of um, the Void, the Letters page to write. There were eight pages of reviews a day to write. Uh, there was a specialist section to kind of oversee and, you know, get the contributors to write those. Again, eight pages. Um there was, a, you know, the ch the charts came in separately from the official charts company, the the charts compilers. But you're talking kind of about forty pages a day to write, each of about 90, 90 words. So you know, I can't do the maths particularly, but but it was a lot of words every single day. But sounds punishing. But you know, if you're someone who has the time to do that it's absolutely the dream job it's the dream job and it i wish it still existed to a certain extent i'm not saying you know as much as teletext itself is missed it is the dream job for someone who was i joined teletext when i was 27 28 and for someone of that age who's got enough experience of being a journalist to just sit there and really get to grips of it and i think other people did that on other sections of course it is such a great um privilege to have because you were left alone to get on with it and it made it quite teletext itself as a as a medium was quite an anarchic medium i'm sure other people have said much the same thing but actually the company itself was quite an anarchic place to work you know the office the one in fulham and later on the one in chiswick were both um kind of free-spirited much more so than newspapers have worked at um you know you were left to you were left to get on with it editorially and it gave everyone a kind of independent free spirit i think which really came across in in what it was like to work for and how we all got on with each other you know it was was quite a close-knit team teletext so you know it was a real you know it's a really lovely place to work mm, yeah yeah it's um there's plenty of people well they, they, everyone's got a fond memory about it and it um and you know looking at 
looking at the some of the bands that you championed, it's um I wrote I wrote a list and I got right as crap. Right. Um so I'll just read a few <laughs> out. Um so you know, I've got the Arctic Monkeys, Kaiser mm-hmm. Chiefs, Razorline, mm-hmm. Arcade yep. Fire, Franz Ferdinand, Keen, the Editors, Snow Patrol, uh the Claxons, Kasabian, Hardfire, yep. Elbow, The Feeling, Scissor Sister, uh the Guillemots. Amy Winehouse and uh, Dizzy Rascal, and there, there were you know, quite a few more than that. But um, I mean, that, that that's um, someone of uh, my age's uh, uh, latest album collection. You know, <laughs> it's, it's sort of like um, you know, and and it's it's, it's incredible that um, you know that, that so many band, bands were championed um, through your magazine. Absolutely. I mean, of uh, of that list you just read out, I mean, I think the only two that we can't really claim direct credit for perhaps is, um, I mean, we did interview, you know, it was actually uh, one of my freelance colleagues, Ian Gittins, who's very well-respected journalist in his own right. Um, Ian was the person who interviewed Amy Winehouse mainly for teletext, you know, and again, that was one where we had to push a little bit for it and we weren't, directly able necessarily to champion amy as much as she wanted for you know we all know the story about amy winehouse she was you know she had a difficult life right from the beginning and trying to find how to be comfortable within the music industry so it's entirely understandable that um her team kept interviewers at arm's length a little bit from the start of her career but yeah we were able to interview amy once um Ian was more of a fan immediately than I was with with Amy, so I can't, you know, I can't personally claim the credit for for Amy, but you know, I think it's fair to say that Ian probably could more than me, and you know, we're very pleased to have obviously played played a part in, you know, I say played a part. I mean, you know, we very 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 small part, but um, but yeah, the other artists you mentioned have been Arctic Monkeys. With the Arctic's, there was a there was a friend uh called ad nunn who basically started drowned in sound record label um with drowned in sounds founder sean adams and ad was like a fantastic resource to have because she was someone who would tip me off at an unofficial a and r capacity as kind of going you need to go and see xyz um kaiser chiefs being the other one and kaiser chiefs kind of famously released their debut single on drowned in sound but this would be long before anyone, even at you know the kind of regular music magazines like NME, would pick up on them. Um, AD saw Arctic Monkeys' first ever London gig at Brixton Windmill, which is a tiny, tiny, tiny venue about hundred capacity. You know, it became famous a little bit later on as being starting its own breeding ground then. But the buzz around the Arctic's had just started in Sheffield. And it meant that by the time they played their first established gig in London at a, you know, another very small venue called the Islington Bar Academy, um, around the single that came out before um, Don't You Look Good, I Bet You Look Good on the Dance Floor. That's the one that people think of as a debut single, but it was kind of an industry tastemaker single before that. So I was able to interview Alex Turner for that. Um, but there's a quite, you know, a quite unfortunate story against myself that when uh, I Bet You Look Good on the Dance Floor was the week it was out, their PR said, can you come and, you know, would you mind interviewing Alex again? And I said, no, 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 it's all right. We interviewed him last month for, you know, for the Tastemakers single. 
don't need to interview him again, you know, you crack on, you know, kind of thinking I'd <laughs> I'd be on the phone to Alex again fairly regularly. And Alex Turner, you know, does not do interviews. From the very start of his career, he didn't. Maybe maybe the one I did with him put him off, I don't know. But um, but yeah, Alex didn't did not speak to Teletext again, apart from one time when Arctic Monkeys won the Mercury Prize. Uh, there were two journalists who got to interview Alex one-on-one after the awards. I was one of them. The guy from The Enemy was the other. Um, and that, I think, was because their publicist, who was a really mischievous, brilliant guy called Anton Brooks, uh, said to Alex, introduced me to Alex in person, having interviewed him on the phone two years previously, said to Alex Turner, uh, this is John. He's from Teletext. He's the guy that turned down an interview with you. You should speak to him now because he's the only guy that's done that. And Alex Turner, to be fair, kind of laughed and, you know, played along with the interview for 15 minutes, which was a real coup to get, you know. That's brilliant. Yeah, it's a sort of bit of a schadenfreude there, but worked, 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 worked in your favour. Same thing really, happened because... with Arcade Fire as well, I should say. But um, <laughs> but yeah, that's, you know, again, I, you know, there's Arcade Fire career has gone a bit sideways, I think it's fair to say, recently. But mm-hmm. again, I uh, I turned down an interview with them for, you know, when Funeral came out, which was like, well done. Well done, me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, was there any sort of, I mean, I, I think we're touching on maybe some of the, you know, some of the sort of rueful, um, you know, opportunities that were missed. But what, what was the proudest moment at the, um, you know, with, with, with the bands? I think the, the proudest moment really was um, uh, was helping Hope of the States to get a record deal. Um, I mean, I you know, I'd maintain that anyone with working ears, if they'd heard Hope of the States demo, that they would have immediately gone, this is amazing. You know, I did a demos page. We did a demo review page for about roughly five or six years during Teletext. And with Planet Sound having a little bit of a reputation anyway for being able to break new artists, you know, fairly early on, but obviously signed new artists, it seemed a good idea to do a demos page and see if we could actually help brand new talent along the way. Um, We had some bands who went on to be established come through those, through those pages like Maximo Park, uh, most famously Calvin Harris. Um, he sent a demo in, which I think was under his real, I think might have been under his real name, Adam Giles, um, before he came up with the Calvin Harris identity. Mm. Um, what became of that demo, I wish I knew, because that might be worth a few quid now. But I remember that one, you know, that was one we gave five stars to. But but yeah, um, with Hope in the States, it was just this amazing, amazing demo of a song called Black Dollar Bills, which went on to become one of their singles. And the guy who became their manager just happened to be reading the page. He was looking to get back into the music industry on a more established footing. And so my part in it really was simply to kind of go, this demo is incredible. And their manager Howard Goff took it on from there, um, but yeah, that was that was one where it eventually led to Sony signing Hope of the States. But um, I say proudest moment, Hope of the States, for various sad reasons. Their drummer, their, sorry, their guitarist died quite early on. Um, you know, they were a band who never quite fulfilled their potential for you know, for perfectly understandable reasons, but they were an incredible, incredible band. And, you know, if my demo review got them anywhere at all, I'm, you know, 
I'm so pleased to have been part of that. But yeah, they they were an astonishing band. And funnily enough, the other band that Howard managed through, um, you know, again, him reading a, a demo review and going, right, okay, this worked with Hope of the States. Let's see if this band became, go on to be anything. Was a band called Comakino. And Comakino went through the industry mill a little bit. It didn't quite work out for them in terms of getting signed. But again, their demo was amazing. They didn't go on to do much, but funnily enough, their bassist now plays with Yard Act. And yeah, and I didn't kind of put two and two together until I interviewed uh, until I interviewed Ryan on Zoom, you know, for a Yard Act interview about 18 months ago. He went, John, it's me. And it's like, oh my God, you know. <laughs> um, great, you know, so it's great that Yard Act are finally giving, you know, one member of Comikina the 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 industry recognition they should have always had, but there you know I, there weren't necessarily many specific instances that I was I was proud of in that regard that I can kind of go oh my god we did this we did that, but I think it was more consistently being able to kind of say again going back to that list you were saying earlier you know elbow France Ferdinand etc that. I was able to be someone on top of it fairly early on because I was going to, you know, in my in my height at Teletext of really going, I can't believe I'm doing this and getting paid for it. I was probably going to four or five gigs a week, you know, and some of those would obviously be, you know, the big, you know, the absolute biggest gigs, but I would probably go and see one or two new bands a week. And of course, you know, for every for every elbow or Kaiser Chiefs, there would be bands, you know, like the Maybes or Dave or whoever that were amazing. And I kind of thought, oh my, you know, these are going to be the next big thing. And I champion them as much as I champion Kaiser Chiefs. And they didn't go on to to be household names, but, you know, I'm still kind of almost as proud to have champions, to champion the ones that didn't make it, who, you know, it's it's the industry's fault, not mine, or, you know, it's, you know, there there are, you know, there are always amazing bands who don't make it. And that, you know, that still carries on today, obviously. But, you know, I'm, I think it was good that we, you know, we did, we did at least spot things early on, it's fair to say. Mm-hmm. You provided an excellent platform to a lot of the bands that were coming through. And, uh, yeah, it was just really down to, the fickleness of the public and maybe the, their management and what decisions they make sometimes. Um, yeah. D- did you get many um, demo tapes uh, sent through? Were you sort of like surrounded, like, you know, I've got visions of John <laughs> Peel surrounded by loads of uh, demo tapes and giving them like, you know, half a minute each. Was it similar with you? It was, yeah, it was broadly similar to be honest. I mean, certainly because as I say, going back to what I said about the general workload of it, you know, I mean, there wasn't, you know, John Peel had nothing else to do. God bless him. <laughs> but uh, but no, we you know I, did, I sh- we probably got. I'm guessing about fifteen to twenty demos a week, maybe. And uh, we had space to review eight, so we tried to. We, I think it was a combination of the ones most likely to succeed, or the ones that had something about them. Or just occasionally, to be perfectly honest, you know, ones which were comedically bad, and you just kind of, you know, you'd let out your, you, you know, you'd let out your bad jokes. Yeah, I was going to uh, just bring on a listener's question actually, because uh, a listener Dan Farham and um, actually did want to know uh, how many. Well, well, you sent many demo tapes, and do you, you know, what was the funniest one you remember? But at, uh, I'm not sure if uh, 
I'm not sure for legal reasons whether you can say or not. Well, I mean, to be you know, to to to, to be honest, I mean, we we. I think the, the the one I got wrong commercially was that, uh, um, and again going back to going back to what I was saying about AD Num being such a good A and R scout is that she persuaded a band called Art Brute to uh, to send a demo in, and in my you know in my opinion that was one where AD had it all ends up wrong and they were absolutely terrible, but you know they went on to have a fairly solid career, so you know I've got to hold my hands up and say that commercially I got that wrong, but you know they. Uh, file under very much not for me I think it's fair to say about their music but I think that's one where from memory I might have given that one 4 out of 10 mm-hmm. and yeah. you know that was one where they you know as I say they, mm-hmm. they certainly went on to be on top of the pops which was mm-hmm. the theme of one of their mm-hmm. songs funnily enough so yeah yeah. are there any instances where you're sort of like having to override your own judgement to be I don't know, or maybe diplomatic or give 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 an act a benefit of the doubt, thinking that it's not something that you're particularly keen on, but you think that your readers would like? Uh, absolutely. I mean, to be fair, the funny thing is about that side of things is that I probably got better at that with with maturity and with after I left Teletext. I think to a certain extent on Planet Sound, um, it was so much my own identity that I probably, you know, probably got lost in my own ego for 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 a while there and um would slag something off because you know if i didn't like it it must be terrible which of course is the wrong way to look at it and i think there was an element that heavy metal just isn't my thing you know it just just doesn't do anything for me you know a couple of exceptions but it's not you know it's not for me and metal bands got a fairly unfair showing on on teletext and i think that was one of the reasons why um me and I think possibly Colin Irwin, who was my immediate boss at, on on Planet Sound, decided at some point that we should have um, a specialist section. So we'd have a specialist folk section that Colin did. We'd have a specialist metal section. We had a specialist hip-hop section. Um, I forget what the other ones were, but, you know, we certainly had specialist sections that would correct that to a certain extent. I mean, I'd like to say that I was able to put personal bias aside and be able to recognize something that was not necessarily for me, but, you know, had great appeal to fans of that genre or fans of that artist. But at Planet Sound, looking back on it on on the time that I was there, I was certainly far less adept at that than I think I would be now, which I think comes from, um, just to di- digress briefly, uh, Kim Carr, uh, Kim Dawson as was, Kim... While I was doing Planet Sound, Kim ran the uh, Club 140 pop pages, uh, like the team pop pages, which is actually where I started out before working on Planet Sound. Um, Kim went on to be the editor of the Daily Stars music page. And I freelanced, I started freelancing them for them through Kim uh, in about 2011. And I still, to this day, 12 years later, uh, I write the album reviews for the Daily Star uh, for a week. And if you're doing for a week, which have to be the four biggest commercial commercial records of the week, you soon learn that's a great, you know, that's a great hip-hop album, that's a great metal album, or, you know, you can still tell if it's lazy for whatever genre it is. But I've kind of honed that, funnily enough, we're working for the, for the, the Daily Star and other music magazines since Planet Sound rather than being that great at knowing 
this is great, even though it's not for me. You know, that kind of came along later. So with um, when you're working at Planet Sound, um, you, you always seem to be um, more outspoken. And um, a, a, a chap called Dr. No Vocal Cords sent in a question, John. Right, okay. Um, so it's, um, I'm not sure if he has vocal cords or not, but um, he, he, he said that Planet Sound, like Digitize, always seem to be more outspoken and freeform um, uh, from the safe BBC equivalents. Uh, was there something that was encouraged and how did your view, how did you view the BBC rivals? Did you get to know any of them? And uh, was there anything that they envied about what you were allowed to do or vice versa? Um, yeah, I mean, it's a good, it's a good question. Um, I did get to know, I don't know Ian Youngs, who was the guy that did the CFAX music pages that well, but um, Ian, to this day, is a very good arts journalist, and he still actually works at the BBC. Um, up in, you know, I think he he went to Manchester fairly early on, and Ian did a great job on on CFAX, but it was more staid for sure. Now, whether or not, you know, I've never spoken to Ian in any great depth to kind of know if that was his choice or if it was, you know, BBC diktats meant, meant it had to be. But I don't think there was any great rivalry necessarily. I think it was just that there was an element, not that we, not I was ever encouraged to be outspoken in that regard and certainly not as much as, I mean, Paul on Digitizer was, you know, he was just amazing at being more of a, of a comedian than I was for sure. And I mean that, you know, and, and, and I mean that with, by championing what Paul was doing. I mean, he made it, a, he made digitize a great comedy section. And I think with me on planet sound, it was more that I was, uh, I probably took the music too seriously to ever go fully down that road as much as Paul did. And I wouldn't have had the, the talent that Paul does anyway for that side of things. But, um, but I think it was the case that I, I kind of took Stephen Neeswood's lead from what Stephen did on, on planet sound and kind of ran with it that as i say the template was already there that you could almost do what you wanted within reason um and i was never particularly dissuaded from that view and it's it's kind of what i think if i'd been someone who wanted to be more serious and wanted to take it more down the sort of uncut mojo route for want of a better cliche that i could have done that as well but it just became the voice that I, whatever writing voice I had at that time, you know, that's what I brought to it. And I think if I'd left that someone else would have brought their own voice to it. So if it was free form and entertaining, I'll very happily take that. But, uh, but that was, you know, it wasn't necessarily too deliberate a policy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So with, um, with working um, at the, at, at Teletech service, you were there sort of round about the winding up time. Mm-hmm. Um, and your service actually moved over to the digital um, service, didn't it? I think it went over to... Um, yes the... and no. Yeah. Um, it was it was kind of a bone of contention that um, uh, Planet Sound wasn't one of the ones chosen to migrate with any bonus content to to the digital world. Now, I'll be honest with you, I can't remember the exact reasons for that. I can't remember, you know, if I'd forced it, could I have got it on there? To a certain extent, I would have to hold my hands up and say that it wasn't something that I, 
I thought was necessarily the best idea in the world anyway. You know, I was someone who was uh, at the time, foolishly, obviously, in retrospect, a bit of a uh, a bit of an internet naysayer to a, to to an extent because I just kind of thought that teletext lived separately and could could live separately. Now you know that's a massive mistake on my part, but um, but teletext digital. I'm, there's a million and one stories and a million and one different takes about why teletext didn't go online, didn't you know, didn't make best use of digital technology as it could have done my own particular take on that is that effectively teletext gambled on digital tv or you know on itv digital as was um it was almost like a red or black choice between digital tv and the internet and teletext better farm and digital and in retrospect that was of course the wrong choice um but that's kind of my memory you know that's kind of my memory of it but um how accurate that was in reality i not for me to say so when you knew that you were moving over from maybe sort of like um the teletext on channel three or channel four uh the you know the classic uh teletext thing was there any final messages or anything that you started putting in into your service yeah, I mean, I, I I can't remember exactly how much notice we were given, but we were made aware, to be fair to Teletext, we were made aware um, quite early on that, you know, 31st of December 2009 would be the final switch off for Teletext editorial. And we certainly had enough um, notice that, you know, we were able to get... I remember the last week or possibly even the last month we ran a series of special interviews with people that we championed on teletext and got messages from them, you know, for the final, you know, the final days of planet sound. Um, so those would be people like, you know, again, people like elbow, people like Kaiser chiefs, people like razor light, um, that they were, you know, that they were able to kind of say, you know, thank you very much. And there were messages from them, um, I remember writing a kind of big emotional farewell from from you know my persona as the void you know the the the, uh, um, the music letters page section you know there was certainly a a message from there um, but yeah it, 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 it was the, it was certainly the case that we were able to celebrate it properly I think it's fair to say that you know we had um, you know we had messages from various musicians that would. Uh, you know that were that, that were saying their farewells to it and their and their thank yous to it. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I would imagine that um, Rob Robert Smith and uh, Nicky Ward <laughs> be particularly uh, taking exception to um, to its absence as well. Well, I've, I, I think I think one of the other ones that's 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 worth mentioning is uh, Bell and Sebastian singer Stuart Murdoch, oh, um, yes. because he was when Bell and Sebastian first emerged. Uh, Funnily enough, going back to you know to, to championing artists early, I got into Bell and Sebastian as a fan through Stephen Eastwood being an early adopter of Bell and Sebastian, and it got to the stage where um, Bell and Sebastian made a point of not doing any press interviews for about three, four years maybe, and the only one they did at that time was with Teletext, and that was one that got a massive pickup for us in the music press, um, and it was because. Stuart ran for um, 
he ran for rector of, I think it was Glasgow University. I could be wrong on that, but he ran for rec- rector of a particular university. Um, and to publicize that, he agreed to, you know, be interviewed on the phone for teletext. And he explained the reasons for doing that was that his dad was a massive teletext fan. And um, Stuart had read us as well, you know, particularly because Stephen had been such a such an early champion of the band. But he explained to us that, you know, his dad would basically always say, oh, I see you doing all right because I see you on teletext today. So, you know, mm. he, he wasn't alone in that. Um, I for, you know, I forget, I've, you know, there were certainly other musicians who would be, you know, apparently I'm doing all right because my dad says I've seen you on there, you know. <laughs> Actually, I'll tell you who it was. It was... Um, Fran Healy from Travis, when Travis were at their height, his um, Fran's aunt Babs became a bit of a cult figure on teletext um, mm-hmm. because she'd she'd write in a but it got to the stage where she'd send us Christmas cards every year. But Fran in, Fran mentioned in an interview once that oh my aunt Babs reads teletext and she you know she'll occasionally phone up and say oh I see you on I see you on Planet Sound again Fran and you know meanwhile <laughs> Travis is selling like five million albums but you know the big deal for Aunt Babs was that they were on Planet Sound you know that was that was quite a nice <laughs> one to have at uh, when you know when Travis was selling a shed load of records that we were still able to get older Fran Healy for mm. you know for half an hour because of because of his aunt basically <laughs> <laughs> that's good yeah i can imagine her wheeling in half the street to um wait for the page to flick around on the uh, exactly for, it was exactly that yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 so uh so i mean um with um the amount of publications there were then um i mean you're sort of talking about melody maker nme select um kerrang um and many more ones that the i didn't fly was coming well. through the fly was doing really well clash yeah, yeah. i mean there, there, yeah. yeah there yeah. was there's a lot of there was a lot of competition yeah for sure yeah so was there any time when you were sort of like you had sort of penned um a, you know some content for your service and um it sort of um you know simultaneously or mysteriously appears elsewhere did any of that happen at any time at all no, not at all. I mean, I think it's, you know, it, it was the case that in those times, enemy, you know, there's there's things to say about enemy at that particular time that would, you know, aren't particularly relevant here. But um, enemy apart, there was a good atmosphere among pretty much all the music magazines and, that you know, it was, it was kind of healthy competition and respect as much as anything else. So, um, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't really do the dirty on anyone and we, we mm. wouldn't on them and they wouldn't on us. So, you know, mm. so, so you would occasionally see Johnny Burrell from Ray's Light told Teletext and, you know, they'd use our stories for sure, but it'd be done, you know, it'd be done respectfully. And, uh, mm. um, you know, mm. it's, it, it was too small a world out there. Proper citation was sort of given. So there's a, yeah, he mentioned on Teletext X, Y, and Z and, uh, that done Completely. that way around so so how many publications are we left with um at the moment at time of recording then we must have lost a fair few i mean there's well funnily enough we're uh on on the on the day that we're recording this enemy has announced it's going back into print as a uh mm. as a bi-monthly you know that's going to come out every two months so that's you know that's fantastic news and mm. you know the enemy now is a much uh, as a much more respectfully run publication it was in the Planet Sound days, and that's as much as I'll say on that. But <laughs> um, 
Uh, but yeah, it's you know, and it, you know, it's uh, there's not there's not that many. You know, of course, there's not mm. that many music publications, but there's not that many print publications generally. I mean, I'm lucky enough that I write for Record Collector, and I edit some of the special editions of of Record Collector devoted to particular artists. Um, again, I write for a magazine called Classic Pop, which is specialises in eighties music. Um, of course you've got Uncut and Mojo as the as the two main generalist magazines that are left. Um the people behind Q magazine run a very good uh online site called the New Q. Um so you know that that survives, you know, in in its own little digital haven and is, you know, that's that's really well done. Um but yeah, I think funnily enough since Planet Sound and Teletext closed in 2009, it's like publications like Classic Pop and it's in sister publication Vintage Rock, which is a kind of rock and roll era magazine. It's like magazines that have got their own specialist niche tends to be the what tend to be the ones that get launched and succeed that aren't the mass publications that Q or Old School Enemy or Melody Maker were, but you know, they've got their own devoted audience you know i think that's mm. where that's kind of where the print future of uh or the print current state of music magazines is at the moment for sure mm. i guess we're forgetting smash hits as well which was the uh um most people's entry drug into uh music journalism that um well i mean good lord i mean yeah smash hits i mean you know that's <laughs> That that was an amazing magazine throughout the eighties, and uh, yeah, much, you know, much missed in in it in its eighties mm. state. And mm. um, I mean, I think you know, per- personally speaking, I wish that there were more magazines. I mean, Uncut and Mojo do a you know they they obviously do a fantastic job for their audience, but in terms of Planet Sound breaking new artists, it's a shame that there's no real generalist publications like. I hope Planet Sound was that, you know, there's not that many generalist publications that take a chance on new artists. You know, there's, I mean, to digress a bit again, there's, there's um, a lot of new talent that has to kind of thrive outside the industry that would appeal to the mass market and does well sales wise. And, you know, artists that have number one albums that for a myriad of reasons, you know, do not get written about by the music press. And it's, you know, it's a shame there's not generalist publications that would perhaps write about those artists. And I think the, you know, the, the music industry is poor for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I would find that um, it's a sweeping generalization, probably of most people my age that what watch top of the pops reruns on, uh, you know, BBC four, that them days have gone for good. And uh, you, you do, you you do wonder how um you know a a a band will actually you know thrive and survive i mean you you look at bands like maybe wet leg and things um you know and 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 their ilk now that get a bit of play on on radio being... I, I, I i think it's i think it's not i think i don't think it's particularly fair to have that view insofar as you know i'm sure if i was you know 28 year old me would be all over wet leg and they're you know they're 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 plainly a great band and i think you know it's always i don't think it's ever wise to kind of say music isn't as good as it was in my day i think what is fair going back to what i was just saying is that the good talent that's out there isn't championed as much as it was perhaps 
But I think that's part of the, you know, certainly it feeds into the debate about streaming that um, streaming kind of creates its own little niches so that great bands, great artists uh, kind of get lost in in their own little ghettos sometimes. And uh, the singles chart has been broken for about 10 years now. And, you know, again, I don't know the solution to that, but I think... I think once if people get exposed to good music, I think that you know there's there's absolutely great bands who are smashing it at the moment. You know, um, lottery winners, Jamie Webster, Red Rum Club. You know, I could I could I can name a ton of bands who who deserve to have the exposure now that they would have had 15, 20 years ago. You know, they're out there, and I think it's disappointing that the avenues aren't the same as they were but again you know you look at gig venues closing left right and center and that absolutely feeds into it because the gig circuit is effectively a tenth of what it was really you know it it genuinely feels like has been decimated to you you know in the proper sense of the word that um there's there's just fewer and fewer gig venues so where do artists go to learn their trade london is too expensive for bands to live in and you know to learn their trade at venues like the Barfly and like um, uh, the Dublin Castle, Bull and Gate. Mm. You know, there's so many venues that were great breeding grounds for new talent that just aren't there anymore or have become more exclusive. And, you know, the cliche that's out there at the moment that you have to be independently wealthy to make it, it's not completely true. But there is an element of that. And as much as I think The Last Dinner Party are a fantastic band, the one criticism of them that's valid at the moment is that they seem to be from wealthy backgrounds. Now, of course, there's a history of great music made by middle-class people from, you know, even going back to the Beatles at art school. So, you know, we shouldn't criticise The Last Dinner Party, who are a great, great band. But the, the working-class talent... And again, I go back to, you know, to, to artists like the lottery winners are having to do it outside of London. And I think there is a, what is a danger is that the industry now is a bit too London centric. And I would include the music press in that to a certain extent as well. But, you know, that's, it's a, it's a, it's a very complicated argument that, you know, is, is almost worth a podcast series in itself, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it certainly is. I think the, um, I think that maybe the the advantage of streaming is that you get everything you want when you want it at any time. But the um, perhaps one drawback of it is that the um, there's no because you silo your own beliefs, um, mm. you silo your own music. Um, you don't really need um, you don't need to be told by anyone what you'd like. Um, but then you don't get told about other things on the back of that that you might want to give a try as well. Uh, it's sort of like um, you, your friend's compilations tapes used to be good. You know, you used to listen yeah. out for one. You know, I used to listen out, say, for, uh, you know, for I used to listen out, say, for, for Ned's Atomic Dustbin and end up, you know, buying a buying a Leveller's album because he did put yeah. that on before it. And, um, yeah, it's that, it's that sort of curation, that public curation now that may be missing because of um, services like, um, you know, um, Planet Sound on Teletext is, is no longer there. People aren't just flicking through anymore to to to, to come by these things. Uh, so 
but I'm 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 sure I'm wrong in my observation. Like you say, I'm, you can't be that 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 obtuse. There's a, there's a lot going on. Well, I, I think you're right about the curation side of things. That you know there isn't the curation is less generalist and less, um, in some cases, less adroit than it would have been 20 years ago because you know to your point that the the advantage of streaming is that you can have anything at any time the disadvantage of streaming is that you can have anything at any time you know it's just where do you you know therefore where do you go to find new music and it's yeah, of course there's new music friday of course there's there's the playlist that that do try to curate that but it's kind of well known that the algorithms on streaming services, whether it be Spotify or Apple Music or Amazon or whatever, aren't entirely um, aren't entirely fairly run to genuinely underground new artists. And you know, there's a there's a big valid complaint from some artists who do very well, comparatively speaking, on the live circuit that their streaming numbers aren't as huge as some artists. But those artists who do can get big streaming numbers because they are airlifted onto those new music playlists for a million and one different complicated reasons. Although they feature on these new music playlists, they play to tiny, tiny audiences because they're not actually ready. Either they're not ready for it or they've been hyped before they're ready for it. And I think that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that you see the, the tastemaker list these days, on um god i've said these days i am 50 years old um you see the taste make you know you see the tastemaker awards um that are given out by you know the the best brits new artists you know the best um critics choice award as it was called um now can go to artists who aren't simply aren't ready for it and but because they've got that brit it becomes a bit of a millstone around their neck and I do worry that some artists who are either winning it or nominated for it before they're ready or, you know, before they're ready, let's say, they never get chance to develop properly. And you kind of, mm-hmm. you know, think you end up thinking literally like in 18 months, two years time, you'll see their name and you'll go, oh, my good Lord. Yeah. What happened to them? And you almost end up in a what happened to part before you've even had an album out. And that's a real shame. Whereas artists who are ready for it, who have done the legwork, who have got a genuine following behind them, still aren't written about for, in some instances, unfortunate reasons, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I've heard, I heard for the first time uh, something you've probably heard many times before the other day, and that was it takes a lifetime to write your first album um but it uh, but you have to write your second one within yeah. a year <laughs> yeah and, uh, well i think I, the, the the funny thing is i mean there's there's a band i really like called the k's who are from uh warrington and they've been they've been going uh gosh it must be about let's say four years if it isn't four years you know it could be five years even and they still haven't released an album and it's almost like there, you know, there's a band called Do Nothing who I really liked, and they finally released their debut album quite recently. But the great songs they'd had at the start of their career weren't on this debut album, and it's almost like they got left behind. And it's almost like they've released a difficult second album before they actually released a great first album because they hadn't been given the breaks at the time that they deserved. And I think the K's are a band who, you know 
as of when they finally do release their debut, which I think is coming at the end of the year, that they'll be absolutely ready for it. But it's almost like they're too ready for it because, mm. again, the A&R that they should have had perhaps two years ago when they were ready mm. just got missed out. But again, it's such a kind of complicated reason as to why the industry is in the state it's in with new talent. But um, And I should make it clear, by the way, that that doesn't apply to all genres and doesn't apply to all um, – it doesn't apply to all artists – and I think what's good is that, you know, you mentioned Dizzy Rascal earlier and, you know, yes, we were an early champion of Dizzy, but not, you know, we weren't. What I liked to do was to get on someone on their debut single and just kind of go, right, because of that freedom that I had that I could write about anything on a Monday to Friday, on a Monday to Thursday, I'd write about somebody who had a great debut single out and just give them their pretty much first interview, almost certainly the first national exposure because what was the harm of it? You know, for every for every Kaiser Chiefs, there was probably six or seven bands I wrote about that did did nothing. But I was able to write about them. But, you know, again, hip-hop wasn't my, you know, I liked it, but I, I could no way say I was an expert. Of course I wasn't. You know, I wasn't the target audience for it, so nor should I be. But with someone like Dizzy, there was enough of a buzz around him from people who did know their hip-hop that we were able to get onto him relatively early you know probably three or four singles in but hip-hop is you know it's obviously the you know it's obviously hip and every variant thereof you know drill music grime whatever um is the dominant young people's music now and rightly so and mm. i think the a and r skills are there in that genre fairly well you know as well as it would have been for for um, indie slash pop music in, you know, when I was at Planet Sound. So again, I shouldn't kind of dismiss what the industry is doing wholesale. You know, it's doing a really good job with bringing young artists like that through, but there is an element that it is missing out quite badly on, on rock and guitar pop to a certain extent, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. It's quite um, hypocritical that uh, hip hop is celebrating its 50th birthday. Yeah. And uh, that's what Teletext will be doing. And uh, yeah. a lot more people know about hip hop. Well, indeed, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, look, yeah, you know, it, 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 it was an absolute privilege to work at Teletext. It really was. I mean, I loved working at Planet Sound and I was, you know, I'm very, very fortunate to have it on my CV. Um, I, you know, wh whether or not people think it worked, and I think there's a, you know, probably 80% of heavy metal fans would go, no, it was rubbish. But, <laughs> within the niche that we had i you know i certainly took it seriously i'll say that much about myself that I, you know mm. we i did take it seriously and you know mm. I, I worked hard but it was but it was a fun place you know i hope what other people are saying is that it was a fun place to work because for those 10 years you know yeah i had stand-up rows with you know with, with bosses the same as anyone else would but but it was a great, great place to work, you know, because you were left to your own devices. I mean, I mentioned, um, I mentioned Ian Gittins earlier and Ian, you know, he's now a successful ghostwriter. He, you know, he, pretty, it feels like pretty much half the autobiographies you picked up, you know, you pick up in any WH Smiths, Ian will have been the ghostwriter for them, you know, from Cliff Richard to Jay Blades. But anyway, Ian was, uh, when he freelanced for us, he was, was and is quite political. Um, 
and he he had a book out. It was like the official history of Top of the Pops, and he refused to publicise it in the Daily Mail and the Daily Express because those papers went went against his political beliefs, which is absolutely fair enough. But the fact is, Teletext was owned by the Daily Mail. Hmm. You know, the Daily Mail group owned Teletext. Now, the you know there was never any political interference that I was you know certainly not on Planet Sound, no. but you know any political interference didn't come through in Teletext, and Teletext was you had your own little silos. You know, me on Planet Sound, Paul on Digitizer. Um, Simon on the TV pages, Paul Aaron on the film pages, and you were left alone to do what you wanted. And if you were left alone, you know, you were able to develop your own voice much, much more freely than you could on any newspaper where, of course, you'd have to be part of that newspaper's voice to a lesser, to a greater or lesser degree. But, you know, at Teletext, it was almost like um, John Sage, the editor, you know, he was, he was great for just having the faith in the writers that he employed to you know to let Just you get on with their job yeah. let you do you you know and that mm. to be fair actually that also i'm thinking of other colleagues who ran other sections that, that you know that as well as the entertainment section that went for like the health section uh the environment section you know there were there were all kinds of sections that built up their own established voice because of the seriousness that the and one individual journalist would bring to that section and hmm. i can't think of anywhere certainly not anywhere that as niche as teletext was or as niche as teletext is viewed now you know we had millions and millions of viewers at its height and you know we we're lucky to do so but it was a it, it was a good product man you know <laughs> uh, yes it certainly was and uh it's been obviously a good 20 years now um since planet sound had, had finished but when i was doing the research to speak to you i didn't have to work particularly hard to find information about planet sound there are so many people that fondly remember it that there's a uh, plenty of um you know plenty of resources to search out on the internet and i guess that must it, it, you know goes without saying that you must be proud about the, the fact that you know you've you've impacted on people's uh you know young formative lives with your magazine yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, um, there are people who wrote to the voids who now have pretty high flying jobs in the music industry. And that's, you know, that's, that's absolutely great. And, you know, whatever part, whatever part, part Planet Sound paid and that fantastic, you know, but um, it was a good time for the music industry in general. I think, you know, that, that, that should absolutely be, be emphasized that um, certainly with, the demise of the singles chart as was it was kind of, you know planet sound coincided with a great period for the singles chart and you know as i was again i was fortunate in that regard that i worked somewhere that was able to you know certainly i capitalized on it but it was there independent of whatever teletext was up to six, six or seven days a week you know but mm. uh, but yeah no it was it, yeah i'm i'm pleased that there are people who remember it fondly and you know, um, although of course I feel my age when you know certain PRs who I work with now who are still in the industry are having to explain to you know young artists sometimes like John worked at Teletext, you know, Teletext was blah 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 blah. And, you know, you're just like don't don't even get you know no. don't even mention it to this poor 23 year old artist who couldn't care less. You know, 
So <laughs> I, I am actually intrigued. Um, how do you manage to explain teletext to the Beastie Boys? <laughs> um, <laughs> teletext to the Beastie Boys was it. It was, I mean, I, to, to be honest, it's so long ago now that I kind of forgotten the exact way that it was, it was put to them. And again, going back to what I said about Arctic Monkeys, Beastie Boys had the same press guy as Arctic Monkeys, who who was a big champion of teletext. And I think in the background, he'd kind of done, um, you know, he'd done his homework, and you know, he'd done his homework on Beastie Boys' behalf to kind of say, look, you know, this is what um, teletext is. Uh, but when I was in front of, uh, I think it was Adrock who who basically said, "Teletubbies, you're you're from the Teletubbies." Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think the the, the favorite the favorite American one to exp- the favorite American uh, person that I explained it to was Juliette Lewis when she had a music career, um, very good music career actually, uh, because she was so infused. But because it, you know, I kind of explained that it was this this music magazine that was on every TV in Britain. And she was just like, so how much do you pay for it? I don't know. It's all free. It's just like it's free. Wow. That's really counterculture. You know? <laughs> and she could not get her head around the fact that behind every TV set in Britain was this free resource, you know? And I gather, I, 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 I never interviewed Debbie Harry at the time, but I was told that Debbie Harry would seek out teletext whenever you know, whenever she was in the UK as well, you know, oh, um, yeah. Ice Ice Cube was another one as well, who was a who was a big fan. So you know, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, you know, it, 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 it always was. I mean, basically, the first ten minutes of every of any interview with an American artist would be kind of spent explaining what teletext was, and you know, some of them would be really, you know, some of them would be really into the idea, and some of them would just be like, you know, we're here to talk about my my album, get on with it, you know. <laughs> So what what are you up to these days then, John? I mean, I'm still working in music uh, in music journalism. Um, I mean, as I say, I work, I do a lot of work for Classic Pop magazine, uh, reviews editor there, and uh, do a lot of cover features for them, which basically means that uh, over the 11 years I've been working for Classic Pop on and off, I've, you know, I've interviewed a heck of a lot of my favorite musicians from, you know, from the eighties and a few from the nineties for it. And that's, you know, again, that's a, that's a fantastic place to write for. And their editor, Steve Harnell is a, you know, is a really good guy who, you know, kind of gives me a lot of freedom to, you know, to write what I'd like to write about and what, you know, chimes of what the readers want to hear about um, anyone from Andrew Ridgely to Pet Shop Boys to Belinda Carlisle to uh, Cindy Lauper, you know, there's there's a bucket list of you know Grace Jones is the bucket list musician I'd love to uh, interview for classic pop I guess Susie Sue as well um, and then uh, as I say I do a lot of work for I do, do a fair bit of work for Record Collector now um, I edit their some of their special editions so I've done just done one on Duran Duran and I'm midway through working on uh, one on Madonna um, again funnily enough ironically given my love of uh, heavy metal I did one on Iron Maiden which was an education uh, and seemed to be some sort of karma for, you know, a mediocre review of an Iron Maiden album I gave in 2005 or whatever. You know. But um, I, I do a lot of writing about music for the Daily Express, which is a, which is an inter- an interesting one to write for because, you know, there, there'll be people who, who are listening who are not politically aligned with the Daily Express and fair enough. But, 
the music magazines, are, the music interviews I get to do for for the paper, um, they are ones where political opinions you wouldn't find on the front page of the Daily Express do get to be expressed within, pardon the pardon, within the pages of, of the newspaper itself. So, for instance, you know, Glenn Matlock kind of uh, saying what a, he, what a terrible idea he thinks Brexit was. You know, that there is... To be fair to the to to the paper, you know, you, there is room within it for conflicting opinion, uh, conflicting political opinions. So that's a good one. You know, that's that's actually a real joy to write for. Again, featured at LA, Matt Nixon is a is a good guy to you know to, to to work with on getting people who wouldn't think that they should be speaking to the Daily Express to speak to the Daily Express. You know, Richard Ashcroft, Sean Ryder, going back to Elbow Gargavi has been in there as well. So, mm. you know, I've been lucky to, to get some uh, some some great musicians in there. Daily Star, I do a lot of stuff for. Um, again, go you know, through the Teletext Connection, funnily enough, as I say, Kim Carr, who um, is on features of the Daily Star now, she got me freelancing for uh for the paper 11 years ago and i've just kind of survived doing doing that so you know they're they're probably the main publications that i write for and i also write about football you know um quite a lot about Luton town for a football mm-hmm. magazine called when saturday comes which is an independent football monthly magazine that's that's quite oh. delightful so yeah, i remember <laughs> i remember Sorry. when saturday comes um back in the early 90s that was uh quite a quite a funny yeah quite a funny thing um yeah that was always at the uh sort of private eye-esque front cover uh, still does still does and then there um, was a rival one as well the onion bag i remember that was a rival one that came out i think or 90 minutes there was 90 minutes as well so it, uh, well it's it's really funny you mentioned 90 minutes because that was uh although um, Blue Spade Views was the first thing I ever had published uh, as an as an amateur as a, as a fan. Uh, Ninety Minutes was the first publication I ever wrote for as a paid journalist. Right uh, oh, when I yeah. when I left when I when I finished my A levels, I had a job going as junior reporter, um, and uh, I didn't get the, you know didn't get the job, but I was offered some freelance work for it. So uh, you know, aged eighteen, I rocked up to West Ham's training ground and interviewed West Ham's then manager Billy Bond. So yeah, oh, I'm well right. I'm well aware of ninety minutes and around about the same time, I did yeah. some work experience when Saturday comes and thirty three years later, I'm still writing for them. Oh, that's that, that's brilliant to know, and it's it's nice to know that you know it's. Well, you know, without blowing any smoke, John, it is the quality of the journalists that keep the publications alive. <laughs> Bless you for saying so. I'll take that. That's <laughs> uh, no problem at all. Well, well, uh, thanks very much, uh, John, for sharing. Nice no, bit of pleasure. Thank us. you. I've really, really enjoyed, um, really enjoyed talking all manner of things, and uh, you know, the, the 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 music and football connection is always uh quite quite a strong one and uh congratulations to luton town as well um <laughs> thank you yeah we're, we're plastic pitch brethren by the way because i'm a queen's park rangers fan oh, well, i'm glad i, I, I right, didn't yeah, mention that yeah. right at the beginning but um <laughs> yeah probably uh, wise Thank you, thank you, John. It's not the football podcast. I was speaking to Ian Westbrook, who uh, was on BBC Sport. He's a Brentford fan, yeah. And then, um, and then Mort Smith, who's a Fulham fan. So, um, I upset everybody equally. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. If you have any Watford fans on, let me know. 
Well, look, here's, here's, here's how much I don't care. Look, I'm drinking out an Arsenal mug. So, oh, there we you, go. Know, <laughs> you know, and I've got Brentford one down there. I broke my QPR one years ago. <laughs> so uh, those ones never break for some reason. But um, yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> but no, that's brilliant. Thank you so much. And um, no, no worries. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks again to John Earls for agreeing to appear on the podcast. Also, thanks to some question contributors, uh, Dan Farriman, Dr. No Vocal Chords, Reese, Rusty Russ. Thanks very much for your questions, and um, I've managed to get, get them all included into the podcast, which was really good. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast as much as I do making them. Um, if you do want to support the podcast in any way at all, remember, you can do the normal thing. Just go on and rate or like the podcast wherever you get it from. Uh, you can also um, send me a Kofi on Kofi.com forward slash bite high if you feel that way inclined. Um, any contributions at all go towards the posting uh, costs of Podbean, which isn't an awful uh, amount, but you know any any little helps um, certainly won't be buying a yacht on the on, on the back of any proceeds. That's for sure. And uh, thank you already to uh, Doctor to Doctor No Vocal Cords and Meat Lotion for your contributions. They've been uh, much appreciated. You can also join the Discord. There's a Discord channel uh, with the um, link in the comments below. Teletext People is a bite high no limit production, and it is uh, presented by me, Carl. And until next time, keep it blocky. still here? It's over. Go home. Go.